You there, what did you say? Are you talking to me? Look, the market's almost open. I'll deal with you later. You don't call me a bull or a bear. I'm a traitor. Yeah, get a little closer to your mic and we're ready to go. Hear ye, hear ye, all ye who hear this here podcast, know this. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing discussed on this podcast should be considered investment advice. The hosts hold no licenses and are not financial advisors. Do your own research before making investment decisions. And we do hope you enjoy this podcast. Good. Well, I think we've got everything in flight and we're ready to go. Tony Greer, welcome to TC's Chaircast. So great that you could join us. Thanks for having me. Really is fantastic to be here. Yeah, it's great. Uh, we've become good friends uh, over the past few months and uh, we've thoroughly enjoyed your, your daily newsletter. Um, and we want to talk about that and talk about some of the bold predictions you've made in the past few weeks that have come true and even get your thoughts on, on the way forward. But before we jump into all of that, um, why don't you tell us your life story, where you were born, um, the arc of your career and, and how you got to today? Ah, that should take just a few seconds. Absolutely, man. You know, um, you know, I'm a Long Island guy. I always tease people and say, you know, I was born, raised, and educated in New York, and I got a cemetery plot picked out. Um, you know, like I'm a New York guy at heart. Um, grew up in the South Shore of Long Island. Um, went to Chaminade High School. From there, went to Cornell University. Had a great experience, um, both with school and playing lacrosse. Um, from there, was destined to go on Wall Street. Really, I wanted to go work on Wall Street. My dad um, worked on Wall Street for 30 years in basically the same seat um, as an over-the-counter trader for Dean Witter and then Morgan Stanley. And so kind of having him as our dinner table conversation leader my whole life, you know, like I heard market stories from the time I was basically five. You know, and so by the time I got into high school, I had picked up on, you know, the competitive nature of it and how animated my dad was when talking about work. And I was like, wow, this sounds like a cool career. And so, you know, got out of Cornell and basically pounded the pavement, um, you know, with a little bit of guidance from my dad and uh, wound up getting a job at Sumitomo Bank, which was pretty awesome because I worked on the 107th floor of the North Tower of the World Trade Center. So uh, that's the kind of experience that's pretty unbelievable place to go to from college to start working, you know, like you really feel like you're in the Wall Street machine, you know, when you're taking two elevators up to your office and you're getting out above the clouds, you know what I mean? That was really, really wild time in my life. And my dad worked in the other tower across from me. So it was like literally like a dream come true for me. Um, so from there, I guess I, I started to learn the currency and commodity markets. I worked with a super smart guy named John Spallanzani, who's been all over the news. Um, he's a popular guy in the markets. And uh, he started teaching me a lot about FX and forwards and how markets traded. And, you know, he was really a guy that first guy that took me under his wing. And I learned a lot from him in a couple of years. Um, and then I moved on to UBS because I got recruited to do a bigger job there and have my own book. Um, in the F on the FX desk. And that was something that I was dying to do. So I kind of rolled up my sleeves and jumped across the street to Park Avenue, uptown, I should say. Um, and I had a great experience there. You know, that's where I got my exposure to the metals markets. Um, I wound up spending six months in the Treasury Department over in Zurich. 
And uh, that was a really cool experience, getting the metals trading experience from the European side of the markets, you know, metals and FX trading from the European time zone. Um, I had a really great experience with that. And it put me in touch with the people at Goldman Sachs that I started trading with. Um, I actually had, you know, Big Dave become a counterpart from the time that I was at Sumitomo Bank and then I was at UBS and I was trading with the same desk in FX and I got to know some of these guys, um, especially the guy Peter Gerhardt that ran the desk and he wound up hiring me um, pretty quickly after we got to know each other and he needed a spot for another trader. And I sort of joined Goldman Sachs, the J. Aaron division, which was, you know, like joining the New York Yankees. Um, in terms of trading operation and spent six of the most unbelievable years of my life there. Um, you know, I learned everything I know about trading that, you know, that I apply today. I learned everything about being rigorous about markets and about, you know, your own positions and things like that. Um, and really like, you know, that opened my eyes to what the, you know, the macro markets were really about. Um, you know, I spent six awesome years there trading the metals book. I traded um, the Goldman Sachs Commodities Index. So I got exposure to all 20 commodities that were in it. And I understood how a book worked and how to run a book, et cetera. And um, I guess after the firm went public, shortly after the firm went public in 2000, as a living example of the decisions that you make that are clouded by markets. You know, I was investing as, you know, as a young guy at Goldman Sachs, I first started making some money and I started putting money into the technology markets because I was a music guy. And that's what led me into the technology markets because I finally figured out that I could buy CDs from Amazon and have them sent to my home and then I could download them on my Sony Walkman. And I was kind of ahead of the curve, um, believe it or not. And, you know, just because of music with the technology side back then, you know, as far as I am behind the curve now, I was ahead of the curve back then. And so I started investing in these tech stocks and they went flying and they went up multiples and multiples and I made some money out of that and decided to leave Goldman Sachs and trade some money on my own because I thought that I was finally, you know, enough of a seasoned trader and enough of a big shots that was ready to take on markets. And so in March of 2000 with the NASDAQ at 5K, I left Goldman Sachs trading commodities, you know, with Oil was 10 bit at 12 and nobody cared. Goldman Sachs was, I mean, excuse me, gold, gold was 350 bit at 400. Nobody really cared as much. It was a good book to run, but it was a small book. And, you know, here was this technology world that was taking over the stock market and I had a chance to get elbows deep in it. Um, you know, I essentially sort of partnered with three other people and we started a trading operation that was very much run like a hedge fund, although it was really just a day trading operation that was worked as a team. And, uh, you know, like I said, sat down to trade tech stocks with the NASDAQ at 5K on its way down. And so it was really, really wild experience doing that. Um, you know, of course, I was kicking myself in the butt shortly after leaving, but I felt that I had made like I had done well enough in the markets and I had a couple of safety nets. The firm had just gone public and I had made some money in the tech market. And I was like, look, man, I'm young and I'm going out on my own. Um, and that was, you know, literally like walking into a frying pan, you know, with the NASDAQ on its way down, you know, into the tech crash. So, you know, I became living sort of example of that market and uh, learned a lot from that whole experience. And then, you know, finally decided, we, you know, we had that operation alive for about 18 months. Um, it was really roller coaster ride. Like we spent the first nine months printing money and then the next nine months, like literally banging our heads against the wall, trying to figure out how to make a nickel and cover our commissions every day. Um, because that was how the market structure was changing right under our nose. 
And so, you know, I can make this a really long story. I can make it short. But then, uh, you know, after leaving, um, my career changed. I had a great run as an equity salesman um, that, you know, I basically looked into my book and learned that all of my colleagues and friends and, you know, people that I knew in the markets had control of equity books or something like that, that I could generate a commission from. So I wound up, you know, doing a stint. Uh, but basically the best run that I had, call it, was at Dalman Rose, which was where I was really settled and established. We were there for six years. Um, I worked with a great set of sales traders. We had a great franchise in the transportation, energy, and commodity business. And um, literally, you know, that was a time when commissions were raining from the sky if you had a good product. And, uh, and we did. And we were a niche shop. And it was literally a place full of maverick traders. And it was probably one of the coolest atmospheres I ever worked in in my life. Um, if there's a place that needs to be a book written about, it's probably Dolman Rose. But, um, you know, so from there, Dolman Rose wound up getting bought by Cowan. I left and played some pickup basketball, like I call it, and, uh, you know, went around to different desks and bought my book of business and then had fights with the managers about how much they would pay me over it. So the one consistent thing that I had going through all of this, and I mean, going all the way back to my time at Goldman Sachs, was that I was writing about markets in all different forms. You know, first it was taking notes and writing little paragraphs, and then it was a more formalized note. Um, and then when I started in the equity business, I really formalized the note probably 10 years before I launched the Morning Navigator. So I had 10 years experience of waking up every day and putting my thoughts together, you know, and gathering the whole world and trying to wrap it up into one, you know, concise, you know, piece of information. And so that's where we are now. You know, I launched this business in, in 2016 with the idea that um, Donald Trump was going to win the presidency because Hillary Clinton was not. Um, and the world was going to change dramatically because of that, because he was just, a, you know, such a, you know, flamboyant personality. You know, who knows what was going to happen with this guy in the White House. But he was an outrageous underdog at four to one. So we, we took that bet as well. And he went into the White House. And the next day I launched the Morning Navigator literally um, from the, the fetal position under this desk right here. Um, you know, it was really scary to finally go out on your own as in your own, as in, you know, putting your thoughts out there um, in a publication that people were going to be reading and, you know, probably making decisions off of because they've been reading your work for so long. And, uh, you know, knock on wood, we're four years into the business and, you know, I've developed some great relationships. I have some great partners that I'm blessed to have and um, a couple of avenues to uh, skin the cat, as they say, and um, drive some revenue. And so hopefully we'll have a sustainable business here where we can continue to help people make money and uh, look at markets in a smart way. And I think that gets me pretty much caught up. That's great. You know, it's a really fun background and in many ways kind of the most romanticized version of what someone who's not in Wall Street might imagine Wall Street is like is what sounds like your career arc, um, you know, kind of how you came up. So um, and, and I'm sure that's informed a lot of how you think today. Um, before we get into what's happening in the markets right now, I'd love to spend a little bit of time on your writing process. Um, you know, I've been a subscriber of your newsletter for I want to say a good eight months thereabouts, um, and you have a remarkable consistency. I mean, you basically have committed that you know you send these out every morning around the time of market open. Um, taking some time off for vacation is as we all need to do, but um, 
is that something you learned from your dad? Um, you know, you kind of learned a lot from him. It sounds like, um, you know, committing your thoughts to writing. Um, would love to know about your process um, and also how your life's changed in putting it out as a paid-for product and what that means from, you know, feedback you get from people relying on your point of view, um, which is very different than using it as your own yeah. thinking process yeah. for your own investing. Well, so that so I'll, George, I will look at that as a sort of three-part question, right? And start by saying that, you know, my dad's influence was as much as uh, it, it was really about the work ethic, I have to say, because he was really, you know, he was a tape reader and he was a street smart guy, you know, 10 times street smarter than the average cat. And sort of his his edge was work ethic, you know, and he was the first one in the last one out. And, you know, he had a good handle on everything that he had to manage in his world. And so I learned that from him. Right. And I took that on to the next stage. And then sort of, uh, you know, from from applying from from the necessary rigor of managing a book at Goldman Sachs is at the J. Aaron division, you know, where they're like literally, you know, they were, you know, our biggest competitors were like Fibro, um, you know, and Refco and the biggest trading houses out there. So like we had a really sharp set, a really sharp team. Um, we had a very, very large and, you know, high pressure operation with a lot of moving parts and sort of I needed to have a visual sense of what I was working with at all times. Right. So I would sort of gather all this information and then put it down on a yellow notepad so that every day I was looking at the same thing. And sort of that became my process. Right. Like just like a lot of traders out there, you know, traders become the most habitual people on the planet Earth you know, and they want everything, you know, and this is what you want when you look at markets, you know, you want the inputs coming at you in the same way. Like I look at the same screen and the same price list as, as basically John Spallanzani taught me to look at at Sumitomo Bank in 1990, right, in terms of sort of how to follow the pulse of the world. And so I've sort of, you know, I've developed the 30 years of reading that tape, right, and how those markets relate to each other. And that becomes a big part of my process as I take notes, you know, where you have, you know, to, to illustrate a simple example that you'd run into, like, hey, that was interesting. All of a sudden, um, you know, the stock market has been cratering and vol is exploding. And all of a sudden, we had a day here where the stock market went up and vol went up. You know, and it just started with like making observations like that and then saying, okay, what's that mean? You know, and what's, what's that, you know, necessarily going to turn into and just literally finding those idiosyncratic things in the market was my, was my edge, right. Is sort of looking at the market, you know, in a sort of creative way and saying, oh, okay, like what's the edge there that I can get from that point, um, and I guess my process has evolved to sort of the same thing in writing today. I have definitely, you know, I, I learned from another mentor who is funny enough, originally from Goldman Sachs, also um, a really super talented and, and very experienced um, FX salesman and trader out there, a guy named Bob Savage. And uh, Bob Savage, when I launched my writing, he was one of the guys that I read every single day. He wrote an internal note at Goldman Sachs, and I made sure that I read that every day. And he was like, you know, the writing about markets, God to me. And so when I launched my business and he was fully supportive of it, he was like, look, man, write down your mission, write down your mission statement and write down what you want your note to be. And literally take a look at that every day before you hit send, you know, and make sure that you're kind of down the line of, you know, being what you want to be, you know, and if you do that, you know, you'll be off and running. 
And so that became another part of my process, you know, and that's another sort of skill set that you have to develop and say, yeah, you know, I kind of went off on a tangent here, you know, erase that, throw that out. You know, this is, uh, this is really too personal. This is me being picky and talking about politics, like a whiny little, you know, bitch, excuse my French, you know, wipe that out, you know, and then just try to really get down to what people that might not know where to look in the morning when they turn on their screens and say, okay, what are the markets telling me? You know, I became, and I wanted to become the guy that was like, you should be looking here, you know? And so I guess that's the process that I try to um, be true to at all times, you know, and, and, and identifying like, what's the right thing to be watching today? You know, the news is looking over here. Um, I, you know, I'd love to point out that that is the biggest distraction in the room right now and not the, not, you know, the farthest thing away from what you should be focusing on to navigate this market. Um, and so I guess dividing what you want to be watching against what you don't want to be watching. Um, and when you're really critical about that process and, you know, like I have 10 trade ideas that I crumple up and throw out the window every day, you know, and none of that gets captured in my writing, you know, like I'm only talking about, Hey, buy this or sell this, or, you know, and none of it goes through, well, you know, I crunched the numbers or I went through my technical process on, you know, either home builders and, or, or healthcare. And, you know, that got thrown out the window after 15, 20 minutes of talking to people about what they thought about that sector. Um, and so I guess that's how I arrive at, you know, I've, I've managed to arrive at some sharp ideas and applied some good observations consistently over time that give me signals that I guess have held true. So does that answer most of your question, Georgia? And if I left a part out, let's go to it. No, that, that's great. And one of the things that really stuck out to me as you're talking is um, the process you use of kind of checking back in with your mission and what you're really trying to accomplish with each newsletter and then weeding out um, and having the discipline to weed out things that don't really serve that mission. Um, and as we were preparing for today, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, and I think it feeds really well into that, is um, the tone you have and you consistently have in your newsletter even when you observe from some of the indicators that it does seem like things are very negative or falling apart, I mean, you know, we've got a lot going on right now in that department, um, you never um, demonstrate a, a bitterness um, or a sense of victimhood about it. It's not, it's never, I mean, I guess one of the things that we read a lot, it seems like there's a lot of, you know, bitterness about what's happening um, with the way the stimulus packages are being rolled out, with the way that the coronavirus um, restrictions and um, are, are being handled. And what I don't read in your narrative is bitterness. And I wonder if it comes from your ability to kind of focus on the data, weed things out that don't serve the mission, and quite frankly, some mental toughness. We've talked about mental toughness a lot on this podcast, particularly with folks that are professional traders. We had Nick Lentz on a few weeks ago, and he talked about that. Um, what is your reaction to, to what I'm saying? I mean, does that seem to be something that you think that you think about and that you work into your process? And how do you nurture your own mental toughness um, as we head into times like this? Yeah. So, all right. So it's a combination of things and you really, I mean, you drill down to, um, one of the earliest experiences of my career in terms of mental toughness, right? So to, to start with, um, I, you know, I don't have bitterness about markets, you know, cause they do what they do, right? I learned a long time ago that, you know, there are things in the world you can control and things in the world you can't control. And when there are things you can control, 
the only thing you can do to react to them is make your own moves in reaction to that. Right. So it's like, you know, everybody, you know, now what we would, you know, like you said, for the current situation, everybody's jumping up and down. There's going to be bailouts and it's this and it's that. And the market's going to be going up while there's unemployment coming and there's dead people in America. And it's like, people don't understand that the price on the screen is not necessarily, or in fact, it isn't at all a reflection of what's going on outside the window, right? It's a much forward looking reflection. So you can't be mad at the thing on the screen because that's a waste of mental energy. So I I really, a lot of that being able to maintain that is definitely comes from my experience. And I'll say, so for my first experience where I worked with that lovely gentleman, John Spallanzani at Sumitomo Bank, um, our boss was a guy, um, and I'll just, you know, whatever his name's Dave Shindo, right? And he was a um, Japanese expat that was the head of our um, currency trading desk. And he was a certified madman, right? Now, he's one of these Japanese men that is a 24 7 smoker, gambler, high energy, drinks coffee all day, maniacal about the markets, thinks about him 24 7. And he used to beat me like a dog. Like literally like a dog, like he would be on the phone with uh, brokers and counterparties and be like, oh, okay, I bought $50 million from you. I bought 50 from you, 50 from you, 50 from you. And he would rattle it all off to me and I would try to keep his position and he would look down and he'd be like, what's my position? And I'd be like, you know, you're long a hundred million dollars. And he'd be like, ah, no, why are you so stupid? Like, why are you so stupid? I'm long $125, you know, like with a Japanese hardcore accent. And I would go and figure out and find the issue and come back to the problem and be like, yeah, you're right. You're, 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 you know, long $125. And, you know, I had to swallow a lot of humility to be able to do that. Right. And I had to look past this guy calling me stupid. And, you know, this is a guy that if I stood up next to him, he was basically up to my shoulder and I could have thrown him out the window if I felt like it. Right. But, you know, you have to be like, okay, if I want to have a career doing this, I'm going to have to figure out how to, you know, function on at, in this, in this, you know, atmosphere. And so, you know, I had kind of had John as my coach saying, no, you're doing fine. Just keep cool. You're doing the right thing. Do whatever you do. Just don't go back at him. And so I sort of had to learn to swallow all of my pride, you know, about, you know, doing whatever I wanted to do to retaliate and just learn how to do the thing right. You know what I mean? And I think my mental toughness from that um, to basically being in the Marines, like at, at J. Aaron, um, you know, UBS was a little bit of a country club, um, but with some sharp guys there. But when I went to J. Aaron, it was like everybody was manager level smart and manager level focused and manager level tough. And so that really made you raise your game immediately, you know, and that was then that's what I'm talking about, you know, with the rigor where, you know, the rigor of knowing your book and everything that's in your book. Um, and I had some really, really serious traders that were managing me that were, you know, hard on me in a very positive way. But, you know, they taught me to be proactive in sort of supplying a trader with information. So I learned how to look forward. Um, and so I guess I hope I answered your question a little bit that way, right? Like that's where the mental toughness comes from. That's where, you know, sitting here and being able to write about what's going on on the screens is about not taking it personally, right? Because if I was taking it personally, or if I was writing bitterly about it, then nobody would want to read it. You know, so I try to just look at it with a very, you know, calm, cool, and, you know, collected perspective, um, very much as a spectator, you know, but maybe a more educated spectator than the next guy. So it's a little bit more interesting to listen to, like the way if you're listening to a hockey game, you know, you want to listen to Wayne Gretzky call a hockey game, you know, rather than Joe Schmo from down the block, who's got a job at the network. 
So that's, I guess, how I've been trying to portray my voice. And uh, really, I do try to portray that mental toughness. And I do have people reaching out to me all the time saying, you know, it's amazing how you stay positive through, you know, all this mayhem. And it's like, look, there's opportunity, you know, there's massive opportunity. Like this is a tell. This is a tell about what's going to happen in the world. And you get a chance to sort of, you know, reach back on past experiences and apply them and say, look, it's the same thing, you know, and so. I hope that answers that question, Georgia. So, Tony, um, I, too, am a loyal subscriber to your newsletter. And before we finish the podcast later, we'll get the full uh, full commercial from you on how listeners can get it and uh, what the product availability is, because I love it. I read it every day. comes in my inbox at, at 9.15, just before the market opens. Um, let's talk about two amazing calls you've made in the past couple of weeks that I think have proven very prescient, just to give the listeners a bit of a taste for... for um, for what you do. Um, the first was, um, I think you've done a pretty good job of calling the bottom in oil. Um, whether or not you personally took advantage of it in your trading, um, you certainly wrote about it extensively in the newsletter and, and seem to have done a pretty good job. Um, we'll see where it goes from here, but it certainly bounced off of the lows. But also, I think you've been very loud, um, and correctly so, uh, about the fact that the markets were going to retrace and melt back up to somewhere around the, you know, the S&P 3000 type mark. And this was a pretty bold call when the S&P was down near the bottom. Um, and you were pretty bold about it. And there was a few days where the, where the market tanked again and you kept your, you kept your call. Uh, why don't you walk us through both of those incidents, your thinking around them and sort of the, again, the sort of the mental toughness of putting them in writing and, and standing by your call. Yeah, sure. And, you know, I appreciate you noticing those, um, you know, because I get, you know, I, I send out hundreds of newsletters every day and, you know, you only, you rarely get back pats on the back and they're not what I'm looking for. But I love it when people say, hey, you really kind of nailed that one. So that's helpful. You know, in the oil market, what helped tremendously, the number one asset to being able to call the oil market was being flat for the entire trip. Right. Like like I had gotten rattled. Um, I was following the oil, the call of the EMP stocks, how they were flatlining before we ran into this coronavirus event. And they had sort of been flatlining. And I said, you know, these are kind of getting washed out here on negative sentiment. And I took a short, very short, small risk and saying, you know what, I'm going to try these energy stocks. And then Larry Fink came out with the ESG story, literally, and it scared the life out of me. I, I lost money on that trade you know, very little money, but I was like, look, this whole oil patch is dead now, right? Like Larry Fink has got people, you know, swearing off fossil fuels and that's going to become relevant. And that, you know, teamed up with the perfect storm of, we had, you know, plenty of supply of crude oil. We had the demand destruction, we had the whole event. And so now I had no position for months and I'm just sitting here, you know, salivating, waiting for to do, to do something. And the trigger, the, the thing for me that triggers oil is, you know, when, when, when literally when it gets to a point that it equals a bucket of Kentucky fried chicken, people start recalculating what the value of that is, right? So like, you know, people say in the markets, there's no cure for low prices, like low prices, right? And I remember the last time during the gas, during the big move in 2015, right? The spill from whatever, from, uh, the, so I have this memory in my pocket, you know, BP. Uh, yeah, exactly. BP and 2015 when oil spilled from 100 down to, you know, $30. And what I noticed about that was 
I called the bottom then too. And what I noticed about it was people that had no opinion on oil all of a sudden were experts on oil at $30. And people that had a bullish call at $100 in oil now said oil was going to $15. And I'm saying like, this is the most upside down thing that I've ever seen. And it sort of reapplied itself here at 20 bucks. You know, down here at 20 bucks, you knew that it was it was this, it was Russia and Saudi Arabia going into probably some sort of a backroom partnership agreement about let's just suffer some pain and try to knock the shale out right now. You know, and you saw that going on on top of the coronavirus demand destruction. And you were like, this is so artificial, right? This is artificial. You've got these guys trying to drive the shale business out of play. And eventually they're, they're literally killing themselves. And I think it's probably hurting Saudi Arabia worse than it's hurting Russia. But nonetheless, I was expecting some kind of a, rep, you know, reparatory headline of that, you know, at some level, because the, you know, Saudi Arabia can't afford to just, you know, pile oil into the market at $20. So, when, when every, all the sentiment, it started happening again, where at $20, you have people that are starting, you know, they're starting to show up in Fintwit, you know, saying, yo, now we're going to talk about free oil, you know, and I understand due to location situations that oil was given away, you know, in certain, you know, locations in Africa, et cetera, et cetera. You were not going to get to the case here. And once you hear like level-headed Americans talking about free gas and free oil and journalists talking about free oil, then you know that sentiment is literally redlined at a crazy, crazy psychological support number. And so I got lucky and, and, and Trump came out the next day and said he was going to have a talk with Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And it started right, you know, it started rallying from there. And then they start talking about production cuts and it just gets the whole thing going. And when you've seen that sort of building block of sentiment changing so many times and you look around at the bottom and you're as negative as you could be. And then you look down the trading row of trading desk, which I call basically Fintwit, my, you know, my, uh, my network. And you see everybody else is, is deathly bearish. And you're like, okay, you know, now something's going to change because things can't go on. And so that's what, that's how I applied that to the oil call. And like I said, I got lucky with Trump coming in the next day. And so it rallied $10 and that was 25%. And that was my trade. And I cashed out a little bit, but the problem was I was being so careful buying it. Um, and then it happened too fast, right? I, I was prepared to be underwater a little bit. And so every time I was tweeting up, you know, oil's 20 bid, you know, and there's bad news out, you know, we just had a 15 million barrel inventory build, right? Oil should have gone into the teens and kept going. Oil's 20 bit. And then the next day you learn that China's, you know, buying oil for their stockpile. And you say, oh, I guess we learned who the 20 bid was. Um, you know, so with, when you see things like that, there's somebody out there taking advantage of the cheap oil. And I basically front ran them, but I only got a quarter of my position on. I made 20% on it and I sold it. And I was like, well, that was fun. And that was the end of that trade. And I moved on. Um, so I guess to address the bottom, the retracement in the markets, um, it was a terrifying slide, right? The, the, the move lower was, was destructive and unprecedented. And, you know, I think that you don't realize how unprecedented that was unless you've seen other crashes, right? And people telling you, oh, that just happened on the screen. You have no reference point, but it was unprecedented. Right. I feel like that's how most of like America absorbed that, you know, like or, or the, the trading class call it. But if you like, you know, if you remember the great financial prices in 07, 08, um, and if you remembered, you know, dot com bust, which I was, you know, elbow deep trading, the, the reversion, you know, the market retracements were so wild that 
you know, people didn't even know what was going on. And markets are known to spin people's heads, you know, and this was basically at a level where everybody was throwing in the towel, throwing in the towel. And you just had to expect, you know, that once they got it to stop, it matched the COVID, you know, it matched the coronavirus optics very closely. And I was out ahead of it saying, you know, during the slide saying, you know, we haven't reached the bottom because we haven't seen this moment of peak panic yet. And then I think I felt that that one Thursday morning that they were shutting everything down and all of a sudden everybody was going out in surgical masks, that that was, the, you know, the peak optics bad moment. And it turned out that that kind of matched the S&P bottom, you know, and then so to just kind of figure it out from there, the, you know, the forensics on that sell off were historic. Right. And, and the major thing that people don't realize is that is forced selling. It's not selling repricing to the economic data. It's people that have to get out of positions and they're not saying, OK, sell a little bit now because there's only 5000 people dead from the coronavirus. They're saying, you see this line item, get out. And so when everybody's getting out of line items down to zero, you know, everything is going to overshoot on the downside. And so when the overshoot, what I, what I perceive to be an overshoot matched up with the fact that we had 10 massive tick index prints below 1500 in a course of 14 days, like that was rattling my brain for weeks. And like people don't understand how heavy a forced selling a liquidation that is. And when the forced liquidation is done, there's really there's no heavy seller in the markets and when you have high frequency traders running any kind of buying into a vapor lock where there's really no selling because of the time period because the selling was just done markets go up you know and 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 i i mean i hate to say it i, I you know i hate to say it but the, the the easiest read is seeing you know the people that don't have experience with the other crashes and don't have the experience of really really endearing lure you in rallies you know they don't they don't know that this kind of thing happens you know and it's a very very short period of time when you look back on it where there's a spike up retracement in a bear market and you know this will all be over soon and people will be happier that it'll be going back down as this bad data coming out but you know there's this just there are these pressure points in the market tc where things just get overdone and sentiment matches it and then you know that there's some kind of response coming and then when you've seen what you know monetization monetization type responses do and then you see the size and scale of this response how could you fight against that? Like what kind of a maniac trader wants to put dollars on the table saying that the Federal Reserve is going to fail to meet their objective in reflating this tape right away? So that's where I looked at it. Yeah, Tony, I would say um, I, I, I read your letter every day and, and uh, I didn't have the courage to go long. But in reading your letter, you saved me a lot of money on the short side because basically I moved everything to, um, I was pretty short on the way down and had a very good, uh, very good run from the, from the peak, but then, um, moved a big chunk of it into gold and then didn't short the hole for once. I remember you and I had a great conversation about Tesla when it was down around 180 and I thought it was going to zero and you were screaming at me on the phone, TC, don't short the hole, don't short the hole. Um, I bought that education. Uh, and I used it, <laughs> I used it, um, this time. So l let's get a sense of where you think we're headed now. So uh, for the benefit of the audience, we're recording this on good Friday. The market is closed. We'll probably release it on Monday or Tuesday, depending on the edit cycle. Um, 
the Fred, the Fed shot its bazooka. We've had, you know, 20 million jobless claims in the last three weeks. Um, we've done most of the retracement. Are you still bullish uh, on a go forward basis? Or now that we're going to start to see the earnings prints and the warnings and the full depth and breadth of the economic catastrophe that I think is unfolding, um, what do you think uh, the markets are going to do going forward? Um, okay. So like, I don't, during this period, like I, I don't even, and, and I'm not questioning your verbiage. I don't call myself a bull, right? I'm just trading through this. You know what I mean? Like I'm not an S you asked me if I'm an S and P bull. And I would say, and I, in response, I would say, well, do you mean for next five minutes or five weeks? You know what I mean? Like, what are we talking about? And so I'm, I, I will call it this. I will say that I'm not bullish the S and P, but I'm still long the S and P as a trade. Um, the S and P has just put in a violent um, formation between 2200 and 2600 um, that I think is probably a sturdy bottom that kind of bounces us. I, th I think I just think there's room for the bounce, right? There's room for um, there's room. What we need to do now is we need to wind up the psychology into max positive psychology, right? And I think what that will do is eventually grind the S&P with with much teeth gnashing and fist pumping and and teeth biting and everything and anguish up to like three thousand, you know, because that's where the moving averages come back in. That's where the old breakout level was, and markets tend to go back and retest their breakout level. And this is going to be mind blowing for people to have to experience because they're going to be so angry that the economy has got such a bad prognostication or diagnosis on it now post corona that the S&P is grinding up and above 3000 right and so that that finally when i think we wind all of the psychology into okay the virus looks like it's behind us we're about to you know reopen I think that might be the time where the S&P is, you know, propped up to that level where we're in max positive sentiment territory. And then that's the big sale that you can't miss. Like as in you can't miss it. You can't miss changing your, your, your personal allocations. You can't miss being totally flat as a trader. Um, you know, you can't miss maybe allocating your money. Like you said, like changing some 401k allocations from stocks to, to gold, to cash or something like that. But I'm, I'm anticipating this rally to be a, a, an eye popping one and then it's going to fail. And then we're going to, like you say, we're going to deal with the whole economic fallout of it and how the fed combats that. But if you look at it, you know, the Fed is playing the same game. They're only playing it with a gigantic bazooka this time. Like um, they're playing with a much bigger gun. You know, they're going monetary, they're going fiscal. They're going to they're literally winning the currency dilution game in one move. Right? So they have to be the biggest um and loudest response on the block, and that's what they're doing. Markets are responding to that. Like I said, we had that massive selling in the in the rearview mirror. And people don't realize that we haven't even retraced up to the level we broke down from yet. And whether it goes another point higher, I don't really know. But I'll tell you, I'm still a little bit long. I have a trailing stop that I raise every day and sometimes intraday. And when markets get up to 2,900 or something like that, I'm going to start turning around and getting short, hopefully while they're opening up the US and people are going back to business and people are saying, okay, this is the time to buy stocks because they just rallied 1,000 points off the bottom. And I'm hopefully going to be there saying, okay, you can have them here because I'm going to get out of them here and then we'll see. 
hopefully that will be the time that we're able to sort of turn the boat from, you know, being a little bit long here to, okay, get out of everything long and sit there and observe for a while, because I'm not even saying that that's going to be the top. I'm just saying that that's where I'm comfortable making my portfolio rearrangements, right? If it goes up from there, then so be it. And it just might, because the Federal Reserve is really just monetarily like, you know, their price, they're, they're pumping up the nominal price of the S and B, right? They are taking the divot in earnings that is going to come out undoubtedly and replacing it with monetization, right? They're we're replacing it with balance sheet, right? They just said they're going to buy high yield uh, corporates. So, you know, imagine what their balance sheet size is going to get to now that we blasted through the old highs of 4.2 trill and we went to five trill. And my, you know, my guess is we go right and double it to eight or nine trill, um, which isn't even an outlier call anymore, <laughs> Um, and so we'll see, man, you know, like that, that type of thing tends to have a really, really currency dilutive and paper asset inflative type of response. TG, let's um, pivot to another asset class that you talked about uh, in your newsletter, and that's gold. Um, I think similar to how you described the kind of face ripping drop in the market um, that we saw on the equity side. Uh, one of the things you had pointed out was, you know, when when you're selling line items, gold is just a line item and it's going to get sold off here too. And that was exactly the right call. Um, it's, it's certainly recovering. Um, but talk to us a little bit about what you're seeing with gold and the relationship between physical gold um, and the ETFs and what you're anticipating will evolve uh, in the coming months there? Yeah. Well, okay. So gold has been fascinating again um, and absolutely hairy because of what's going on in the money markets, right? So if you look at the range um, that we just had in gold, let's call it for the date from call it uh, the middle of February until just just recently, say, you know, gold had that spike. Uh, first, it had a spike up to seventeen hundred, then it tanked back down to I don't know fifteen hundred or so, um, rallied all the way back. Right during that. Um, during that uh, during that period of time, what was going on was that the EFP, the exchange for physical gold, was basically blowing out to levels that it hadn't seen in decades. Because what was happening was you had funds that are out there that are buying the board, right? They're buying um, futures. And you've basically got the banks and the dealers selling futures to them and staying long cash, being long cash gold, loco London. And what happens is when gold gets bid like it is, their position on the exchange, their short position gets enormous, right? Um, the exchange raises margin on those positions. They either have to go put up more money or shrink the position down. And in a lot of the cases, what they wound up doing because putting up more money was too expensive, you know, um, they wound up because the money markets were too tight or for whatever reason, they would wind up buying the cash gold back. And so they shot the gold price back up and then it sort of flipped the other way where the where um, producers came in and started selling gold. It caught the dealers long, tons of bullion at the highs. It got banged all the way down to the lows of 1500 again. So if you see what's going on behind the scenes here, there's very much a boxing match going on between the money markets and the cash gold market because gold, as you see, is rallying. But very interestingly enough for a commodity rallying, there is no supply demand story in gold, 
right? Like, you know, when you see commodities rallying on, on, you know, uh, for, for weeks and months at a time, it's usually because there's a shortage story. There's a tightness story where people can't come up with immediate delivery and there's plenty of gold in the world, but thank, you know, because of the situation with every central bank blowing their brains out, um, and easing rates and adding stimulus, et cetera, et cetera, people are buying gold. And so that's creating these distortions in, um, the relationship between the exchange and the local London price that's causing extra volatility in the markets. So then you have the extra volatility in the markets running into the negative gamma. And those are the traders that get shorter as gold goes higher and they become buyers of gold at the highs. And so you can see that's why the volatility really, really picks up there. And so that's the story underneath. And what, what I, I don't know, I guess I have, I feel like I have a decent eye for gold having that, that, that book was my book at Jay Aaron and I had the best teacher in the world and he is still like my Yoda today. And I talk to him pretty much all day, every day. Um, and that's a great gift to have, um, when you're following these markets and not so much to sort of, you know, we, we keep going back to saying, right, this is just like that. Right. And, you know, confirming like, yes, this, this matches old experience. And so we can still go higher here. And so, you know, in, in the times of blowups, yeah, there are funds that are out there that are blowing up. They're definitely going to be long some gold because it makes sense to be long gold in this scenario. And guess what? They are a seller at the market. Um, regardless of whether the scenario for gold is a great scenario or not, they are hitting bids until that line item goes to zilp. Um, and so that's what, uh, you know, obviously there's buyers of gold because this, the, what central banks are doing. So it falls into strong hands eventually, gets back on its feet and rallies higher. But when you look at gold's performance versus the S&P, like gold's doing exactly what it should be doing, like next to nothing. You know, you're long gold because you want it to be doing nothing. You want it to be there in the case of emergency, you know, when you get back from this turbulent time. And that's likely to be the case, only it'll be at a higher price because we're playing a little bit of hot potato now as central banks, you know, basically go into a competitive currency devaluation scenario. So if you just sort of, you know, same thing in gold as the S&P, if you just sort of keep your head about you um, while others are losing theirs in the market, you can sort of just get a beat on what's actually going on and what's driving price and uh, sort of help you make more informed decisions. Yeah, Tony, I, um, I, I navigated using your newsletter, my position in gold in and out um, as you made the calls and I'm, I'm very happy for it. I managed to get more of it at a lower cost basis, which is always good. Um, there's the medium term, short term type trading type flows that you observe, but uh, I just want to sort of get you on record. Um, you do believe in the long term, if you were just um, looking at gold, that the, the secular trend is going to be bullish as we create trillions of dollars out of thin air. Um, and just want to make sure that you sort of conceptually, um, is, is that consistent with your, your sort of medium to long term outlook? That's totally fair to say. That's totally fair to say. I mean, I can't, you know, put it this way. I'm going to, I'm always a gold trader, you know, like, you know, they put it this way. There, there, there's, I, I just have one account where I have, or, or let's call it this. I have my head on my pillow, sleep at night, physical gold cash position, right? That's a long, that's in my, you know, personal ledger. That's never going to change. And then I'm a gold trader. Right. I have gold. I have a trading account that's long equities or bonds or currencies or whatever it may be. And when gold is a light, a line item there, it is a very serious line item. Right. I, I'm, I never have a casual gold position. In fact, I, I want to say I almost never have a casual position, but that would be that, that wouldn't be that, 
that wouldn't be totally true, right? Um, so like, but when I have a goal position, forget it. I, I am dialed in, focused on every second of intraday price action. I'm focused on how it's trading in Japan, how it's trading in Europe. I'm focused on who's doing what on the exchanges and as much as I can get the information. And I'm a gold trader. Yes, I think, you know, I'm a bull trader in this scenario, this global macro scenario, where it seems to behave well in flight to safety scenarios like the US Treasury market does. Um, so that's interesting. I think that a next development for gold might be some severe headline inflation at some point. And and you know, TC, this is another this is another conundrum trade where, you know, when when the Federal Reserve started QE one, you know, I was in the boat of the guys that were like, oh my God, we're gonna have like this is gonna be like insane inflation. This is gonna be hyperinflation. This could be Weimar inflation. Like guilty as charged, right? And I learned my lesson that the counter side to that is that there are other massively deflationary forces out in the world, right? So once you get that lesson down, you can decide which side of the pond you want to be on. Now, I just think on this side of Trump's tariffs, on this side of his protectionist policy, and then especially on this side of coronavirus, I have a feeling supply chains around the world are getting dramatically reshaped. So I'm nervous that that's going to cause the price of goods to go much higher, whether it's because of the supply chain changing, whether it's because relationships are changing, changing countries with who, uh, changing supply um, sources, et cetera, et cetera. Everything is going to change. And I feel like that's going to make price more expensive before it makes it cheaper. Um, so I feel like while this event was deflationary and we're living through the initial deflationary events of a shutdown, um, which the globe has never experienced before and it's terrifying, um, but I think that when we get back in motion, the world's going to look so different that I feel like commodity prices and more importantly, caught, uh, finished goods prices could really, really rise in this environment. And that's usually, you know, I mean, if we start seeing headline inflation, you know, could you imagine if we see CPI at 5%, PPI at 7% and mutual funds decide to change their gold allocation from 50 basis points to one and a half basis points? I mean, forget it, forget it, forget it. So I have a different, slightly different view, um, similar view, but I maybe a bit of a, of a different take. Yeah, um, I believe we are going to see um, slices of hyperinflation uh, and, and then verticals that suffer severe deflation, depending on the utility of the underlying as it pertains to the persistence and well-being of life. And so I expect substantial hyperinflation in the food vertical, for example. I think the price elasticity of demand for food is infinite. Um, and I don't view that as a demand shock. I view that as a potential supply shock for the things you just articulated. Um, I think things that have uh, perceived potential to hedge against inflation will also, um, by their very nature, um, spike in price. So I think um, collectibles and things like that, as people do begin to fear you know, for the, the Weimar Republic type potential outcome and the destruction of money. Um, but I do think things like um, food supply chains and other necessities of life are going to see substantial inflationary pressures. Um, and then some other more elective type um, verticals like maybe clothing and things like that, fashion, um, sporting events, we're going to see massive deflation in the value of uh, sports franchises and, and things like that that will ripple through the economy in complex ways. But if I was going to pinpoint where I would look to see the beginnings of inflation, it would be in the food vertical. So 
it's been a wonderful hour. We could talk uh, trading with you uh, indefinitely, but um, we, we, we had you on because, A, you know, we've become good friends, and, and B, we just love your newsletter, and we thought that our listeners would benefit from getting to know you and, and I think would even benefit from uh, signing up for your newsletter. It's very fairly priced considering the value you give. Can you walk us through the letter, um, the various um, pricing um, options for potential listeners that want to get more of Tony Greer? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I really appreciate that endorsement from um, someone whose views that I respect. And obviously, I've been following for a long time. And I appreciate your friendship. And I'm truly grateful for, you know, for you reaching out and giving me this type of exposure, because it's basically the best exposure I can get. Um, So to talk about the newsletter, um, I charge $75 a month, and I charge $650 a year for my my daily note. So you can go to um, tgmacro.com and go into the product section and you'll see that I have a daily newsletter publication called The Morning Navigator. And I have a sort of more serious, um, I guess call it more serious trader level or corporate level package called the Point Lookout Package, which includes um, basically two to three extra longer form reports a month and um, some other correspondences during the course of the month that my clients are very, um, very happy with. And um, I'm on Twitter at TG Macro as well. And uh, I love being in the mix. And like, you know, like I said, to start off, I can't thank you enough for, uh, for, for having me on, man. I really do. I appreciate your audience and the way you look at the markets. And I appreciate being a part of that. Hey, Tony, maybe one of the more lighthearted things I'd just been dying to ask you about, um, and it's a component of your newsletter, which is the uh, study break. Um, totally unique. I haven't seen another finance publication or trading publication that has something like the study break. Um, and I get just a lot of enjoyment out of it. And, you know, there's a lot of great nuggets there that get, you know, copied and pasted onto my desktop. Um, why don't you tell listeners about that component of your newsletter? And also, you know, how do you find these things? I, you know, <laughs> you, you find some real gems that are not uh, your more obvious go-tos. So um, why don't you describe it for everyone and, and talk a little bit about how you do it? Sure, 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 Georgia. I'd love to. It's um, it's obviously my favorite part of doing my work. That's sort of uh, that's sort of my part of work day. That's like a little bit like a mental workout, right? Where you sort of feel good going through it, and you feel even better when you're done, and it's a little bit refreshing, right? Um, the study break was a section that I originally had in my correspondence as a sales trader. That was a short form little set of quotes that were things that were sort of to appeal to the human being in every trader. Um, You know, I'm seven eighths Italian um, as my heritage, and I'm a sort of hot blooded guy. I I loved working on the floors of the exchange, I loved open outcry. And there was a certain level of energy and personality and blatant, blatant fun that went along with that. And sort of when I started the newsletter, I wanted to figure out how to pull some of my exchange experience into this newsletter. And that was a necessary part. Um, You know, the newsletter, there had to be a part in it that was like being your buddy every day and saying like, hey, man, you know, whatever, whatever happens in the markets, man, don't worry about it. You know, life's more important. And so I added the study break section and it is literally people's favorite section. It starts more conversations than my market calls sometimes, which I truly appreciate because, you know, you, you really, you, you can talk about markets and people's eyes glaze over. They might care. They might not care. But man, if you nail a song lyric that resonates with them, you will get 
150 words back, you know, and that's something that I really, really enjoy. And I enjoyed making that connection with people. Um, and so in the study break, um, as you guys know, uh, I, I just figure out a theme to go down and something to talk about. And sometimes it's sparked by a song. Sometimes it's sparked by an event. Sometimes I just take one quote and figure out what the, what the sort of essence of that quote is and sort of go down that line. But, um, you know, it's something that comes really natural to me. I'm sort of a, a, cre a more creative right brain guy than I am left brain guy. Um, you know, I, 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 in my spare time, I like to draw. I like to play the guitar. Um, you know, I do things like that. Um, and so, you know, I'm not very good at things like Excel spreadsheets and technology. So I figured out that if I could put this sort of artist, show this artistic side of me along with, um, an ability to, um, you know, navigate markets that it would be a sort of a, a part that people in my note couldn't resist, you know, and whether they really, you know, if that day they particularly may have may not have cared about my market subject matter, they would definitely care about my study break because it gave them a little smile at the end of the day or a quote would resonate. And um, I really enjoyed learning and becoming a sort of, you know, a, a master at that skill as well of, of just sort of creating this, you know, one page of my note is just for fun. And I, you know, people like fun, they like to have fun. And I like to try to cause a couple of laughs here and there, or at least die trying, you know? And, uh, and so that's where it comes from. That's where it comes from. Uh, listen, Tony, your charisma is uh, self-evident. And, uh, for all the listeners, you can find Tony at, at TG macro, and you can find Tony's newsletter at www.tgmacro.com. Uh, open up your wallets a little bit and flip <laughs> over four bucks a day for the best newsletter you're going to read, uh, before the market opens and do us a do, do Tony a solid and, uh, and help a guy out trying to build a business. So Tony, uh, you've been a great guest and I know the markets are going to be crazy and we look forward to having you back on again, uh, to explain it away, uh, next time. Oh man. Well, hopefully you can have some good calls to talk about next time. I appreciate you pointing those out and, and giving me so much positive vibes on here, man. It's great to be on this podcast. Thank you so much, Tesla charts. Thank you. And Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> and scene. Sensei? Yes, Grasshopper. This market is beating me up. Can you teach me how to run a book? Well, it's an art, not a con. After all, I'm not a crook. Okay, Sensei, an art. So what do I do? Take off your jacket, and I'll tell you. Jacket on, jacket off? I've seen that flick. No. Risk on. Risk off. Don't think you're so slick. Okay. Now what, Sensei? Wax on, wax off? No. Show me how you sweep. Sweep what? The floor? No. Show me how you sweep put options once you think you see the tops in. Okay, then what? Once you think you've seen the bottom, then you sweep the call options off them. What next, Sensei? Patience, Grasshopper. Patience. Well, at least you didn't say paint your fence. No. Keep sweeping. It sweepeth all the options in, or else it gets the hose again. Sensei Master, you're mixing your movie metaphors. 
I love a little alliteration. Have you considered writing? That may be a second occupation. Thank you, Sensei. I may pursue that. And Sensei? Yes, Grasshopper. Why do you speak in rhyme? I have no idea what you're talking about. Now don't let the door hit you on your way out.